Pastor Will, one of the servants here at New Life Press, and uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, and those of us worshiping with us for our live stream, just want to welcome you, and it's a, a joy to be able to worship with you. We are continuing along in our series and our study in the book of Nehemiah, and our passage for today will come from the second half of Nehemiah chapter 5. So let me read that for us, Nehemiah chapter 5, starting with verse 14 to verse 19. This is God's word for us, and uh, as a habit at this church, out of reference for the Word of God, if I could ask everyone to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Nehemiah chapter 5, starting with verse 14. This is God's Word for us. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there are at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us, now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance for the governor, because the service is too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And this is God's word for us. Please take your seats. Well, if you've been following along with us in this study of Nehemiah, you'll notice that he's a wonderful leader that's able to deal and to find solutions of all kinds of different problems. But in the verses that we've just read, we get sort of a, a laser focus and a more intimate picture on the kind of guy that Nehemiah is in his character and what kind of leader that he is. And when you read these verses over and over again, as it reads like a journal, there's one thing that seems to shine forth in the character of Nehemiah in his leadership, and that's generosity. This is a closer, more intimate picture of Nehemiah's character, his leadership, his person. And what we see here is that he's an immensely generous person. In fact, the Old Testament scholar Derek Thomas and pastor, he has said this, It has been said that the single most important mark of leadership is teaching folks to be generous. Nehemiah's generosity was in part meant as an example to his community. And so I want to look at generosity here today, not just for leaders, but as it says there, as an example for all of us. And this is what we'll think and we'll notice. When I say generosity, your mind probably automatically goes to be generous with money, generous with the possessions, a financial generosity, and certainly that's the case. But what I'm going to try to argue here this morning is that a truly generous person isn't just generous with money, they're generous with everything. In other words, a truly generous person is generous in every way because someone who's touched by the gospel becomes a generous person and not just generous with your money, but they call, there's a generosity in totality. You're comprehensively generous. And that basically means one way that you could tell you're really a generous person is not that you just give a lot of money away, but that you're also generous with your time, you're generous with your gifts, generous with your friendship, generous with your tears, generous with your compassion, your love, 
generous through their forgiveness. Because someone who's truly generous in the gospel, the gospel is the penny has dropped and has touched your heart and made you a generous person, means that you won't just be financially generous, but you'll be comprehensively generous. And that's exactly what we could look at in the verses that I've read of the Nehemiah. He's comprehensively generous. He has generosity in totality. And we'll see three aspects of this comprehensive generosity in, in, in Nehemiah. And these are three aspects of his generous heart and character. First, he's generous with his money. Secondly, he's generous with his rights, his entitlements, his privileges. And then thirdly, he's generous with his compassion. Another way to think about this is that Nehemiah shows us that he's generous with his stuff, his materialism, his possessions. And then secondly, he's also generous with his entitlements. And then thirdly, he's generous with his heart because he's comprehensively generous. So let's look at this. First, he's generous with his money. One thing we'll notice that Nehemiah shows us is that if the gospel has touched your heart, it basically means this, that Jesus has given up everything on the cross to give you everything by faith in him so that you can share everything with one another. That in the totality of the Christian life encompasses generosity. Jesus gave up everything to give you everything so you could share everything. It is not just money and possessions, but it's also who you are in your person and your character and all the gifts that he's given you. Because last week, if you're here with us, you'll notice that people in the camp, the Jerusalem people, were poor, they were desperate, they had no food, they had no sustenance, they were going hungry, and Nehemiah saw the problem, he found the solution, he took the guys who were the oppressors, and he made the oppressors give all the money back, and that's what we call justice. But here we see that Nehemiah, he doesn't just lead with words, but he leads with action. Because generosity to Nehemiah, justice, wasn't just a reality and a nice principle, but it was also something that he applied. It's not just generosity on paper, but he was generous in character. Nehemiah just didn't talk about generosity, but he also lived it. And let me just give you a sampling in these verses that show how Nehemiah was generous with his possessions and his money. In verse 14, it says, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. In other words, there is basically a meal plan that he had, but he didn't take it. In verse 15, it says, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I didn't do that, he says. I did not do so because of the fear of God. In other words, he could have took 40 shekels. He could have took money. And then in verse 16, he says he could have took more land. And everybody knows that real estate is your first move in order to build your purchasing power and your wealth. But he didn't take more land. And then in verse 17, he just says that I fed my men, I fed 150 people, my neighbors that are around us. He says, moreover, they were at my table. In other words, he had dinner every night, 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that are around us. So through and through, what we see here is that Nehemiah was generous with all that he had in his money, in his land, in his food allowance, as well as he was generous with his hospitality. But it shows us that he was really generous with his possessions. Now, I don't know if this is actually true, but it's commonly been known that this guy by the name of Francis 
of Assisi once said this about generosity, or actually the Christian life. He said, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. And what he meant by this is that just don't preach love and preach grace and preach forgiveness and preach generosity, but your character, the way that you live your life, in some ways will be the evidence and the greater shouting out of who Jesus Christ is for you. Preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Did you know that in the history of the church, and it should be here today, that in the history of the church and the Bible, the church seems to indicate that gospel generosity is one of the most powerful countercultural qualities of the church, gospel generosity, because in significant ways, it's what made the community of Christians. It made us stand out from the rest of the world, and our generosity served as a powerful witness to the beauty and the grace of Jesus Christ to the surrounding communities. When unbelievers witnessed the generosity of Christians, they saw how we loved one another, And many people throughout church history came to faith and became saved, partly because of the power and integrity of this refreshing alternative to the world's materialism. The generosity demonstrated a life-changing power in the gospel because while being attracted to the generous giving of Jesus, unbelievers were attracted to the gospel that empowered this generosity. Basically, it offers an entirely different paradigm than the world, Do you know what the world says? Let me make it very simple for you. The world says, materialism says this, love possessions and use God and people to get them. But the gospel says this, love God and people and use possessions to express that love. It's a completely different paradigm. You either love things and use God and people to get things, or you use You love God and people, and you use the blessings and things to serve and to love God and people. Basically, that's all that you have to say about that. Now, a little lesson on church history. The emperor Julian, the Roman emperor, he had an interesting complaint about Christians in the early days, and he said that the impious Galileans in the church in Galilee, they support not only their own poor, but ours as well, and everyone can see that our people lack aid from us a Christian witness of generosity. Aristides, an unbeliever, was sent by Emperor Hadrian to spy out those people called Christians. And he says in his words to the emperor, which reverberated throughout the centuries, Aristides, a non-believer, came back and reported, behold how they love one another. And how did he know that Christians loved one another? By their generosity, by their mercy ministry. Randy Alcorn has said this, As thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. When the lightning of God's grace strikes us, the joyful giving of our time, talents, and treasures should follow. And so if the penny drops, if the grace of Jesus has touched you, if you've seen the generosity of God in his son Jesus given to you, and you've embraced that, it's transformed you, it touched you, it changes you, giving will follow grace. And not just giving financially, but giving comprehensively. And this leads us to our second point. So some of you are really good. This is a tricky thing. Some of you may be wealthy, and some of you may be well-to-do, and you give a lot of money. And that's absolutely great. And even the book of Romans will say that generosity is a true spiritual gift. But this this is one way to know that if you're truly generous in your heart, 
Because you could give a lot of possessions and money away, but be really stingy inside. Because remember, if you're really generous in your character, you're generous comprehensively. And one of the things that we see in Nehemiah is that he's not just generous with his money, but he's also generous with his rights. His rights. He had legitimate rights as the governor. He was、uh, the Persian ambassador to be the governor of Jerusalem. So we've already seen he had rights to certain meal plans and food, certain resources and land. He had rights to compensation. He could have gotten paid and made a lot of money. He had a legitimate legal right. Now you can argue that the system was broken, but even within that system, on paper, he had a legitimate right to compensation. And he even said, every governor before him in verse 15 always partook and received all this compensation. But Nehemiah says. I didn't do that because I feared God, and I saw that it was a heavy burden upon the people. He had a legitimate right to food, land, forty shekels, an ox, sheep, birds, and of course, to top it all off, he had a legitimate right to the finest wines. Because what's better than a meal with nice wine? But he had a legitimate right under Persian law.、And、did you know what he did with this? He said, "I'm going to lay it all down," because. I want people to be more important to me. He's going to lay it all down. His rights. Now, I'll be honest. You know, in some ways, pastors struggle with this in our own little world. That just because you're the pastor, you always get this sense of entitlement and the sense of the sense of like I have a right to this. You know, I have to listen to people's sins. I have to try to shepherd them and counsel them. And there's something about sin that distorts that that makes pastors. If I'm going to be honest. Sort of entitled and think that we have certain rights. So I'm in the same boat as you guys. Even yesterday, we had a wonderful church event with Trunk or Treat. We had the taco man come out and gave us tacos that tasted wonderful. And I started sitting down and eating my dinner with some of the youth students. And I didn't know this, but I said, "Hey, you guys like the tacos?" They said, "Yeah, this is great. Go get seconds." And one of the students were like, "Actually, they told us we can't get seconds because there's limited tacos." Then one of the students said to me, "But you got pastor privileges. You can go up, get second tacos." And I thought about that. He's probably right. But for the kingdom, I laid it all down. I didn't get a second carne asada. I didn't do it for the kingdom. But all that to the side, pastors are really just as entitled as everyone else. Sin corrupts that and does this. Now I'm going to try to dig deeper here. We're going to do a quick counseling session before we go to our third point. One way to understand the the essence of rights is to use this word privilege or entitlements. It's a little bit different, but I'm going to look at this from the position and posture of entitlements. Are you an entitled person? Well, I'm going to answer that for you. Yes, you are. <laughs> Because you're a sinner like me, and we're all entitled. Darby Strickland, who's a counselor at CCEF, she wrote a wonderful article about how to understand entitlement. So I'm just going to give you a little bit. That's a little bit about what entitlement is. And this is entitlement, friends, for you to understand for yourself. We all know what it feels like to be entitled. You know, basically in our hearts, entitlement is when our desires, even desires for good things, turn perverse. Our hearts basically say this: I demand, I'm owed, I have the right to insist, and what I want matters most. That's the heart of entitlement. 
And I think all of us can relate to this in our own ways. There are many ways to describe entitlement, friends. Darby Strickland says it's basically selfishness. It's prioritizing your own desires over someone else. It could be narcissism, where you have inflated sense of yourself that allows you to justify mistreating others because your rights and privileges matter more. See, there's something interesting here if we had time to elaborate, but rights and privileges in themselves is not bad. You actually have to understand, made in the image of God, you have certain rights and privileges that are innate to the dignity and to the honor of being made in the image of God. But if you have a deflated view, as a pastor friend of mine in Chicago has taught me, if you have a deflated view of rights and privileges, then you're going to be walked over. You're going to be abused. You're going to be used. On the other hand, if you have an inflated view of your entitlement and your privileges, then you're going to be the abuser, and then you're going to be the user, and you're going to take advantage of people. So the gospel is the only way that gives you the right identity and sense of worth to know that there are privileges that you may innately have, but out of love, you can lay them down. Because if you have a deflated view of rights and privileges, you're going to be abused, used, and taken advantage of. And if you have an inflated view of your rights and privileges, you're going to be the abuser, the user, and take advantage of people. And Darby Strickland goes on, she says, I've come to understand that the core attitude of an entitled person is that I have a right to the things I want, and I'll punish whoever stands in the way of my desires. In severe situations, it may come to even this. Serve me, or you're going to suffer the consequences. So one of the ways to figure out if you're really an entitled person is if you're always someone who's a little bit vengeful. Because people with a strong sense of entitlement are so invested in their own felt needs that the primary reason other people exist is to fulfill those demands. When others fail to do so, you penalize them. Some use aggressive tactics like yelling and name-calling, even physical violence. Some of you use passive-aggressive ways in that you retaliate because you're entitled, but they're small white lies, or you ignore them, or you ghost them, or you withdraw from them. Either way, the punishment, whether aggressive or silent in treatment, the goal is to control and hurt the offending person. That's how entitlement actually operates. The person's not giving you the respect, whatever you think you deserve, then you control them by either aggressively hurting them or passive-aggressively ignoring them. And if you see that, a pattern in your relationships, it may be because you're a little bit entitled. Well, a couple examples maybe to hit home. A mother comes home from work on Friday afternoon. She explodes when she sees the messy entryway, hears the music blaring from her kids. She grounds her teenage children for the weekend, insists they clean the entire house. Now, you have to understand, there's nothing wrong with that. But if she's doing it out of a sense of entitlement, I worked hard and I deserve a clean house and a quiet house and obedient children. And because I'm not getting this, I'm going to take out my frustration and anger. And you think it's loving discipline, but it's really just punishment and entitlement. Well, dads may not be any worse. Husband gets home from work two hours late. He forgot to call, but is upset that no one waited to eat dinner with him. He eats alone. He pouts. He refuses all attempts from others to comfort him. So he silent, gives them silent treatment to his wife and kids. Or maybe a little bit closer to home for those of us in youth group. A friend feels hurt because one of her girlfriends went out to dinner with another friend, but didn't get invited. So she ignores her calls for three days because she wants that person to know the hurt that she felt. 
There's entitlement in there. It's not easy. Let me make it simple. There's so much more to say, but let me give you something simple. Darby Strickland says these are basically several beliefs for somebody who's entitled, and you can figure this out for yourself. These are six beliefs that entitled persons seem to operate about. She says, first, an entitled person basically lives by this first belief. It's all about me. Secondly, it lives by the belief, you and I need to listen to the same person, and that's me. The third belief is that rules are not meant to be followed, but rules are only meant to keep me happy. That's why entitled people are always breaking the rules because that's what makes them happy. My anger is justified. People are always attacking me. And the last belief they say is that I don't appreciate anything that you do, but I demand that you appreciate everything that I do. Now, if you live by those beliefs, if you're honest and you can work through this, I know it's hard to remember all the six beliefs, but go back and listen to the recording. You may be someone who's entitled. At the end of the day, this is entitlement. It's a worship problem. It's an idolatry problem. Entitled people see themselves as the center of the world. But God is the center of all things. He created us to worship him. So when entitlement causes people to dethrone God, it impedes worship, and it also quenches Christian growth. That in turn negatively impacts those relationships and the people around you. As the entitled claim the center of everyone's lives, they require everyone else to be devoted to them and to worship them and not God. And that's why everything relationally around you implodes and gets fractured and doesn't work because God is the center of the universe and we're created to worship him. See, what Nehemiah shows us, and the most beautiful thing about rights and privileges is that basically it's an Old Testament example of what Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 9. But more importantly than this, Nehemiah, as the governor of Jerusalem, points to a better governor in Jesus Christ who laid down his rights for the kingdom and the world, who is at the center of the world but came to the outside to save entitled people. Now, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 7 famously says this, talking about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, if there's anybody who had innate rights and qualities with Jesus Christ, never sinned, the perfect man deserved everything in this universe and praise and glory, but he gave it all up. He came down into this world and took on human flesh, and then he gave it all up, and he suffered the very wrath upon the cross. He suffered wrath for sins that he never committed, but he took our sins and went into Jesus' account, so he suffered for our sins so that we could stand in his righteousness. Jesus laid down everything to die on the cross next to two criminals. The King of kings and the Lord of lords and the universe gave it all up. He laid down his life literally upon the cross to save you and me. Nehemiah had that Christ-like strategy. Nehemiah had certain rights, he had certain entitlements, but he gave it up for the people. He didn't demand revenue, he didn't let his people demand revenue, he didn't tax the people, he did the opposite and got his people to actually join the people to work on the wall. He switched places with us as he points to Jesus Christ. Or as Morna Hooker has said it this way, Christ himself became what we are in order that we might become what he is. Christ became sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's how Nehemiah points towards laying down your rights. And friends, this is something that just takes some time. You've got to just consider this. 
You know, consider like, what does it mean to lay down your rights and privileges that might be legitimate, but you're doing it out of love for the people. Maybe it's masks, maybe it's honor, maybe it's a seat at the table, who knows what it is. But at least the past shows us that certainly you have innate rights, but in the power and the grace of the gospel, you may lay that down for the people around you. This leads us to our third point. Nehemiah shows that if you're touched by the gospel, you're comprehensively generous, not just with money, not just through the privileges, but also with your heart, with your compassion. See, some of you are really good. Maybe you're really generous with your material possessions. Maybe you're generous because you're even able to go into the back of the lunch line so that other people can eat first. But maybe you're a little bit stingy when it comes to your forgiveness, to your compassion, and to your love. Read with me verse 18. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because his service was too heavy on his people. Too heavy. Isn't it interesting that when the Bible likes to talk about suffering and hardship, it uses this metaphor of weight, of weight, because it was too heavy. Have you ever tried to lift something that was too heavy? You can't do it. It wears you down. It tires you out. See, some of you are very generous with your time, your money, your gifts, maybe even your resources, but inside you're stingy or miserly with your heart and your compassion. And one of the things that Nehemiah shows us is that he's able to be generous with compassion because he looked out to the people and it was very heavy, the financial and the life burdens. You know, when I was in high school, I lived in uh, Florida, and I lived on, my dad bought this house. We lived on a two and a half acre lot. And it was just, it was a pain in the butt to mow the lawn, to take care of the lawn. You know, my dad was always just a hard worker. He's a much harder worker than I am. So we'd always be out there every Saturday trying to mow the lawn and clean the lawn by ourselves. And I was like, why can't we just pay somebody to do this? And I remember one time we're trying to set up, like, I don't even know what we're doing, but it was a bunch of rocks just trying to make it look nice in the front yard. And didn't it even look nice? It was just me and him. And I remember we're trying to carry these rocks, carrying it with this little barrel, moving it over closer to the front of the lawn, and then one by one lifting these rocks and trying to place them in this border around the front lawn. And I was thinking to myself, this is Florida weather. It's hot and it's humid. And I'm not that strong. I don't know if I could do this. But I desperately wanted my dad to be proud of me, and I didn't want him to think that he couldn't depend upon me, so I tried with all my might to do as best as I could. But I literally almost felt that I was about to pass out because these rocks were too heavy. You see, friends, that's just the metaphor of life. That you go through life, and sometimes life throws things at you where it just feels too heavy. And you're thinking, day after day, it's another rock. I don't know if I could do this. don't know if I'm going to get through this. I need people. I need help. I'm on my last string. I don't know if I'm going to survive. And it just seems so heavy and so burdensome. And those are the people that you have to show compassion because that's what Nehemiah was seeing in his church. You see, friends, if you try to show mercy and compassion just by emotionalism, empathy will run out, and you'll stop being compassionate to people. 
At the same time, if you try to show mercy to people because you feel guilty and it's like, oh, a Christian is supposed to be like this, guilt will never drive you or run you into the ground. So it can't just be emotionalism. It can't just be guilt. It has to be a gospel, spirit-filled compassion that leads you to look at the heavy burdens around people. And if you just look around, everyone's carrying your own rocks day by day, and you need people to help you lift that load and to show compassion. Because at the end of the day, it's people that matter the most to Nehemiah, not processes, and not even the building. It was the people that moved his heart. Well, it's been about a month and a half, but everyone remembers that fateful day in 2001 and 9-11. You probably read a lot of transcripts and testimonies about United 93. Now, if you haven't, this is what I've read multiple occasions. I was actually working at a bank 10 blocks north of the Twin Towers on that fateful day, and I read about this later, about some of the passengers on United 93. You can imagine what happened on that plane. They hear about the fact that the two towers have been crashed, and they're noticing that on the plane something funky is going on, and, nothing, and something doesn't seem right about this. And you can now see the ages and the faces and the pictures of all those who have passed away on United 93, and this is just a sampling of what I read of the people calling their loved ones in the moments before they died in the car crash. You know, Mark Bingham at age row 25 he called his close loved ones and says, I want to let you know that I love you, and I love you all. Jeremy Glick in row 27 called his wife Elizabeth and said, we've been hijacked. I love you. Lauren Grandolis, row 23, called her husband Jack and said, I love you. Todd Beamer, row 32, please tell my wife I love her. Linda Gronlin, row 26, called her sister and said, Sister, I love you. Give my love to mom and dad. C.C. Lyles in row 32 said, Babe, listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I want to tell you that I love you. Please tell the children I love them. You notice in their last dying moments who they didn't call? They didn't call their stockbroker. They didn't call their realtor. They didn't call the alma mater from their Ivy League education. They didn't call their financial planner. They didn't call their entertainer. They called the people that they loved because it shows that in the heart of man, the most important reality is people. And so it is with Nehemiah. He looks around and says, well, we got to get this project done. We got to meet the deadline. We got to be able to build this wall. But at the end of the day, Nehemiah shows it's the people that matter, compassion. And where does he get this sort of compassion? You can't manufacture this. You can't develop this on your own resources and strength. It comes from something outside of you to change you to be compassionate people. And I think it ultimately points to the person that Nehemiah shows, that as a broken man, Nehemiah points to someone who has greater compassion than him in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 11, Jesus had compassion on Lazarus. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, before Jesus fed the 5,000 in that famous story, it says that he looked out into the crowds. You know what he felt? The verse says, right, 34, he had compassion. Romans 9, 15 says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And it's talking about this great redemptive plan. And do you know how God shows compassion on whom he has compassion? 
ultimately on the person and work of Jesus Christ for you and me, that God shows compassion to sinners like you and me. Do you know why? Because our deepest and heaviest burden that you and I will ever have to carry is going to be the burden and the weight of eternal death because of our sin. It's a burden that's too heavy. And the only way that you're going to make it through this life is if somebody could come down into the messiness and the dirtiness of your heart and lift you up and out of that heavy burden of the sin of your rebellion because I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Jesus, are you willing to go down to show compassion to the people whom I have compassion on? Sin was too heavy a burden for us to bear. Hell was too heavy a burden for us to bear. But Jesus entered into our world and united us to himself, lifted us up because of God's compassion to you and me here today that touches our hearts so that you and I also could be comprehensively generous and have generosity in totality with our resources, our money, our possessions, our rights and privileges, even our hearts and our emotions and our love, grace, and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's all I got for today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that speaks to us, that changes and transforms us and allows us to be honest and vulnerable about who we are in our sinfulness and selfishness and entitlement. We pray that we wouldn't be a coveting and greedy people, but that we would be a generous and lavishly loving people. And we know that we could do this and grow into this because you have shown us and lavished us with the generosity of your son, Jesus, who changed us, forgiven us, and transformed us. We thank you, Lord.